Welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. And today we're going to be talking about what various atheists have to say about prayer and what we should say in response. I'm looking forward to this show and I hope you stick with us to the very end. I want to make a little bit of an argument for atheist prayer. But I would pray to be able to control the wants of my diet. Because in the context of how he was saying it, he was basically saying, you're in my thoughts, you're on my mind, I'm wishing you well, you're in my prayers. I don't think that that is idiotic of him. Hey, prayer works, prayer works, prayer works. Okay, demonstrate it. So we've got some radically answered prayer. I, I think this counts. I mean, how do you get more specific than a number like that? So in today's topical video, this is actually the first of a two-part series we're going to do, at least two parts, because what we're going to do in this episode is we're going to take a look at what various atheists have had to say about prayer, because they don't all make the same points and they don't all provide the same commentary. Um, and then, though we're going to look at some philosophical responses and some biblical data and that sort of thing and hear what these guys have to say and gals, uh, then we're going to, in, in a follow-up episode, I'm going to bring in Dr. Pritchett and we're going to go through some of the New Testament data on prayer more specifically and in depth and respond to a video from an atheist who is trying to show that the Bible statements about prayer are contradictory or, uh, or don't make sense of our experience as of prayer in the world. So we're going to try to respond to this. Now, why a video on prayer? Well, specifically because um, it's one of the things that I think atheists have a bit of a confusion about. Um, and I don't say that condescendingly. By the way, let's see. Am I right about this? I think every single atheist that we're responding to here is someone who uh, there are things about them I appreciate and things about the way they do things that I like. And I'll point those out as we go. Um, so I don't have anything against these people. None of this is... Um, ad hominem or anything like that. I, I like these folks and I appreciate certain things about what they say and how they operate. And so I want to, I want to, uh, I want to put that out right at the front that I say this in every video, but you may have never seen a video from me before, but if you're an atheist in the audience, um, this is not attack on, an attack on you. I don't think that you're stupid. This is not an attack on these individuals. I don't think that they're stupid. Um, th these are people. These are real human beings. And if I do a response video to someone or a topical video where I play their videos, it's because I, I thought enough of what they said to respond to it. So um, I appreciate and admire them as image bearers of the one true God. All right, so uh, what we're going to do is we're going to start with a video from uh, Cosmic Skeptic. Uh, I think it's Alex O'Connor. And I think this is an older video from 2016, but he calls this the paradox of prayer. Link is in the description and he, he subtitled Why Prayer Praying is Pointless. So let's listen to what he has to say and let's uh, give some responses here. God. The most important one to focus on for this topic is the fact that all three of the Abrahamic gods are supposedly omniscient. This means that they are aware of everything that has happened, that will happen, and is happening right now. Another important point is that they all supposedly have a predetermined plan as to what's going to happen in our lives. And here lies the paradox of prayer. The type of prayer that's brought into question by these qualities are the type of prayer concerning asking God for something to happen. For instance, if you ask God for your favorite sports team to win, or for a family member to overcome a disease. The important point is that the outcome of these prayers will have one of two options, i.e. it will either happen or it won't. The team will win or the team will lose. The family member will survive or the family member will die. It's always going to be one or the other. Now the issue is, God already knows 
which is going to happen. He already has it because he's already planned it to happen. The future isn't the future for him because he's outside of time. This means that God already knows if the team is going to win or lose. God already knows if the family member is going to survive or die because it's all part of his plan. So when you pray to God asking him for something, it will either already be part of his plan or not be part of his plan. If it's not part of God's plan, then it's not going to happen because God's plan is final and God's plan is the best plan. This means it's pointless to ask for something if it's not already part of God's plan because it's not going to happen anyway. On the other hand, if it is part of God's plan, then it was already going to happen regardless of whether you prayed for it or not. This means that while you're not hurting your cause, you're also not helping it in any way. And because you're praying for something to happen that was already going to happen, this means that a prayer of this type is again futile. So this means that both of the conceivable outcomes of this type of prayer are completely unaffected by the prayer itself. And there lies the paradox. Whether it's part of God's plan or whether it's not, what you're praying for will have no effect on the outcome due to the attributes that, if you're part of an organised religion, you agree your God has. And therefore any prayer of this type is futile. Now of course, if you have your own personal religion which believes that God can change his plan, then there's no contradiction to be found. This is only a paradox if you believe your God to have the attributes that are laid out in one of the three Abrahamic religious texts, that is the Bible, the Torah or the Quran. And so, Jewish, Muslim, Christian fundamentalists, I'd love to hear your response. Well, thank you for asking. Uh, first of all, I want to go ahead and agree with Alex on at least one thing, and that is that there may be a sort of a paradox here, but we need to clarify what we mean by paradox. So a paradox is an apparent contradiction, but that doesn't mean it's an actual contradiction. It's something that appears like a contradiction until you look under the hood and then you find out, oh, there's nothing contradictory here at all. So um, when we're having discussions like this, typically we consider the fact that we have um, uh, contradictions which are actual impossibilities, like the married bachelor that always gets brought up. Someone can't be a married bachelor because if they're married, then they're not a bachelor. And if they're a bachelor, then they're not married. So the concept of a married bachelor is an impossibility. That would be a contradiction. Then there are uh, mysteries. Mysteries are things that do not involve a contradiction, but uh, we just don't have all the information we would like to have. It's mysterious. So uh, in the New Testament, you have certain authors talking about things and saying, uh, this used to be a mystery, right? It was a mystery. The Trinity, we could say, is mysterious. There's nothing contradictory in the concept of one God who exists as three persons. Now, if you said one God who exists as three gods or one person who exists as three persons, that would be a contradiction. But uh, that's not the Christian perspective. It's one God that exists as three persons. Now, is that mysterious? Yes. Do I have all the information I would like to have about that? No. Nevertheless, it's not a contra There's just no contradiction. It would be. It would just simply be false to say it's a contradiction. When people say that, they're just incorrect. But it is mysterious. A paradox is a little bit different. A paradox is something that sounds like a contradiction until you unpack what you mean by that. So um, I was crucified with Christ, yet I live. That sounds like a contradiction until you unpack what's being said there with the theological language, and then it makes sense. So uh, I agree with him that there is something that seems paradoxical about this. It seems like a contradiction, but it's not actually a contradiction if you consider all the philosophical underpinnings here. So what Alex is saying is, look, there's no point in praying because God's got a plan. He knows the future exhaustively. And since he knows the future exhaustively and has a plan already, then your prayer will not, uh, will not overturn whatever his plan was. Now, there's a couple of hidden assumptions here. I'm not exactly sure. He could have gone a couple of directions with this and probably would have required a longer video. On the one hand, he could be saying something like this. Well, 
if God knows what you're going to do and knows what's going to happen, then it's impossible that you have libertarian freedom on a paradigm like that. Many people have made that point, and he doesn't spell that out, but I'll go ahead and respond to it. The idea that if I'm going to do something in, in the future, but God already exhaustively knows what will happen, then I couldn't have done otherwise. I had to do whatever it was that God knew that I was going to do. Okay, well, part of that is true and part of that is not true. It is true that whatever God knows I will end up doing, if he can't be wrong definitionally, if he does have exhaustive knowledge of the future, then whatever he knows I will do is what I will end up doing. But I don't end up doing it because he knew that's what I was going to end up doing. The very idea of foreknowledge, the very idea of his knowing the future, is that he knows what will freely be done and what was freely done is what he knows will happen. So take, for instance, a situation with like uh, Peter and Judas, um, Judas betraying uh, Jesus and Peter denying Christ. Okay, uh, when Jesus foretells of these things, uh, one might say, well, but wait a minute, either they don't have free will, in which case they have to do what he foretold they would do, or it could be the case that they could have actually made Jesus wrong. Uh, they could have not done those things. And then in that case, uh, Jesus would have been wrong. But the problem with that is uh, it, it, Jesus knew what they would freely have done in the future. So he wasn't going to be wrong because he knows what they will do, but that doesn't imply that they had to do what they ended up doing. So for instance, uh, think about it this way. If uh, Peter had not decided to deny Christ, does that would that have made Jesus wrong? No, that would have meant that from eternity past, God would have known what Peter would have actually done and Jesus would have foretold differently. So what we freely choose in the future is what God knows in the past. Now, if you say, well, that doesn't make any sense, well, then you just don't like the idea of foreknowledge and that would be a whole other discussion. But if we're positing a God who has foreknowledge, well, then in such a case, there just simply isn't a problem with your having libertarian freedom and God knowing what you will freely do. In fact, um, this is a commission of what is known as a modal fallacy. It's the idea that knowledge is somehow causal. It's a category error. Knowledge doesn't cause anything. So God knowing something doesn't cause you to have to do it the way that uh, he says that it's uh, going to turn out. He simply knows what you will do and no, he won't be and can't be wrong if he really does know the future. But that doesn't mean you aren't free. He simply knows what you will freely do. So if Alex were to go further and bring up that charge, well, then I think that we have a fairly good answer to that. In terms of his knowing the future and having a plan, which is specifically what was uh, mentioned here, that's not a problem either for some of the same reasons. God knows what will happen, and God knows what your prayers will be from eternity past. So if God knows what your prayers will be, and his plan is built around your prayers, well, then there simply isn't a contradiction. He took your prayers into consideration in the crafting of a plan. Now, if you take uh, what is known as a more Calvinistic approach, Calvinists are Christian determinists, and uh, I disagree with them about the nature of human freedom, but they're still my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I still love them, and they're still Christians, because despite what many people say, the fact that Christians disagree about some things doesn't mean that Christianity is false, right? So um, Calvinists who understand uh, determinism to be true, theistic determinism or divine determinism, 
they do believe that God knows exhaustively the future, in part because, if, or if not wholly because, he is going to determine every single action of every individual. So on that, uh, on that paradigm, even your prayers are determined by God. The very words you would say and the thoughts you're thinking while you're praying those prayers, it's all determined by God. So if Calvinism uh, turns out to be the case, then I would have some sympathies uh, with what Alex is saying here, although Calvinists have their own responses for that, but I'm not going to carry the water for them. Um, on the other hand, uh, on a free will setup, uh, we think that the reason that we see certain evils in the world, certain suffering, certain pain, is because God gave man libertarian freedom. That is genuine freedom to choose among options. And uh, he didn't have to do that, but we believe that he did that because that way you get real genuine love, which is giving of yourself freely for the good of another. It's real sacrifice. It's possible if you have that libertarian freedom. And that libertarian freedom is an overarching good that, uh, that makes it, uh, in some sense, worth it to have certain things not be as God would ultimately intend them to be. But if he wants the libertarian freedom and wants the real love, to love your neighbor as yourself and to love the Lord your God, then in that case, you have to give man libertarian freedom, we would argue. Um, in such a situation, God is perfectly consistent to honor your free prayers. Now, he has a plan, and that plan works in the midst of our libertarian freedom. So when Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, and um, uh, then we find out what you intended uh, for evil, God intended for good— God didn't intend the evil so that he can intend the good, but given the evil, he brought something beautiful out of it. He brought some good state of affairs out of it. And so God works within our libertarian freedom. So on that setup, God can know what we will pray in the future. Secondly, it's not always the case that when we pray, there's always just this uh, you know, binary uh, one thing or the other. Um, God may not answer the prayers the way that we like, or God may answer a prayer that is in accordance with his will. And there may have been a multiplicity of things that would have been in accordance with God's will. And God doesn't disturb his ultimate will for allowing uh, certain, th certain prayers to be granted uh, instead of allowing some other state of affairs uh, to go on. So when you understand that, these two concepts, that one, God knowing the future doesn't cause the future. Knowledge isn't causal. That's a simple fallacy, a simple category error, a modal fallacy. And when you understand that uh, God uh, in the past knows what we will freely do and can take that into account um, in his plan, uh, then there simply isn't a problem here. So this philosophical uh issue for prayer simply dissolves. Uh, secondly, I'd like to take a look at this from another angle. Let's take a look at here Pendulette. Pendulette, uh, as you know, is uh, an atheist magician or illusionist or whatever the proper term is for him. And we're going to hear what he has to say about prayer from an atheist perspective. Is he an atheist who actually affirms prayer? And what, was, what does that mean for us? I very rarely look in this kind of proximity when I'm not sexting. Um, uh, if you want to know how to be a good leader, watch Donald Trump and don't do that. <laughs> don't do any of that. Uh, uh, I realized recently uh, that I, um, I do something very close to prayer. And I don't want to show any disrespect to people by using the word prayer, because I know from my friends who are religious that um, prayer has a supernatural element. 
that people are actually connecting to a higher power. And I don't want to show disrespect to that. But I also want to make a little bit of an argument. Um, Sam, Sam Harris makes his argument for atheist meditation. I want to make a little bit of an argument for atheist prayer. I do something before I go to sleep at night called Penn's Guilt Roundup. And Penn's Guilt Roundup is I go through uh, conversations that I've had, like uh, tonight, before I go to bed, I'll think, should I really have made that sexting joke when I was at the big think? Should I really have done that? Was that out, did that make people uncomfortable? Was that online? And I'll run through how I could have done that better. Uh, I say that with no joke. Now, by the way, we could go into a whole discussion about morality here and why is it that he has this sense of morality um, and on an atheist paradigm, how do you account for morality and is it subjective or is it objective? Is it merely a matter of personal opinion or preference or is it um, simply a fact that certain things are right and wrong? We could do all of that, but not really the point. But I do just want to point out that uh, on this worldview, I think you give up a lot you don't just give up real prayer, but you also give up, um, I think, an objective foundation for morality. But that's a video for another time. Okay, I'll actually do that. And um, I run through conversations I've had and things I've done. And uh, One that comes up every night was, you know, should I treat Teller better? And the answer is always no. But I do reflect about it. I do think about it. I also try to think of um, what I want and how I can get there. Now, I'm very fortunate because when I go to my desires, they're, they're not very often material, material desires because my family's well cared for. I've been, I've been very lucky and I've done well. But I think about, uh, I used to think about my weight. And one of the things I used to, and I, I'm, very, I'm very hesitant to use the word because I don't want to show disrespect for those who think it really is supernatural. But I would pray to be able to uh, control the wants of my diet. Wouldn't it be nice if I didn't want pizza? Wouldn't that be great? Uh, and I try to run through how to do that. And I do believe uh, with God, there's a lot of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I'm not referring to baptism there. I'm referring to, uh, uh, I'm referring to the fact that so much of the social and personal elements of religion are really good. I would say maybe more than good, maybe very close to necessary trying to find ways for people to get together and help each other and be in celebration. And all over this country now, uh, when I first started talking openly about atheism, uh, the country was set at about 0.8% for atheism. 0.8, less than 1%. And now, uh, some polls are giving you over 20%. I don't think that people are being created as atheists. I think they're just simply coming out of the closet. And we have to show... Yeah, and the data actually shows that. Um, if you go back and listen to the uh, video episode, uh, on, I think it's on YouTube now, with William Lane Craig on Ben Shapiro, uh, Craig laid out some of the uh, stuff that the research is showing now about that. It's You see some of the old denominations dying out and um, people that were already atheistic and just kind of going through the motions because they felt like that's what they should do is be going to church. Well, they're now being more out and proud about the fact that they're an atheist or at least not trying to hide it. Um, and the people that were serious are, are you know, they're, they're moving to uh, non-denominational churches or they're remaining serious in those denominations. But we see the denominations beginning to die out. Um, and uh, it's not necessarily that we have a whole lot of new atheists being created, although there is some of that. At least that's what uh, these sources are saying. So uh, I, I wanted to point that out. I want to point another thing out about somebody like Penn Jillette. 
And that is that this is a nice guy. Do you notice how often he's trying to say, I'm not trying to offend the people that I'm responding to. One of the things that I hope people take away from this channel and try as hard as I can, I still have people saying, well, this guy's just a swindler. He's a grifter. That's a new word I had to look up recently, which basically means like you're a swindler or um, you're trying to make it sound like you, you don't uh, hold certain horribly negative beliefs. I've tried to be very open about my beliefs, uh, even the unpopular ones. And I've tried to show that I really do um, love the people that I'm that I'm dealing with and that I know watch these videos. I, I care about you, even though I don't know you. And sometimes I do uh, get a little too gruff in comments or on Twitter, but I try not to do that. And when I do that, I'm wrong to do that. And I recognize that. But um, more than that, I try to show what I like about the people that I'm dealing with. And even to the point that many Christians, if you'll look at my comments for the last couple of videos, will say, you're doing it wrong. You're too nice to these people. Well, uh, you know what? It's not for everybody. But the thing about it is, I, I really, first of all, it's really genuine. It really is genuine. That's really how I want to be. I want to, as best I can, be at peace with all men, but I also want to speak the truth, but in a spirit of love. And even if you don't believe in my God or anything like that, I hope that you can appreciate that as a human being, that's what I try to accomplish. I think that Pendulette, to a certain degree, tries to accomplish that, and I really do appreciate that about him. Um, a couple of years ago, my family really got into, with a close friend of ours, um, we got into playing Monopoly every night. Um, and so we, we play Monopoly, and uh, that is a game that can destroy families and uh, destroy friendships. Risk is even worse. You don't want to play Risk with anybody unless you're really close with them. Uh, but uh, we, we were playing Monopoly just like every single time that, the, that this friend would come over. And uh, uh, I, was watch I even got to the point where I was watching some YouTube videos about Monopoly. And I saw that the world champion of Monopoly made this statement. He said, you know, when I play Monopoly, it is no holds bar. It is, it is I'm, I'm going for blood. You're not my wife. You're not my kid. You're not my friend. You are my enemy. But he said, you know something? The fact is, if you really want to win at Monopoly, if you really want to be good at Monopoly, you want to be the kind of player you want to have the kind of attitude you want you want to present yourself in such a way that your enemy kind of doesn't mind losing to you you know i mean there's usually one person when you're playing a board game like that or perhaps a card game there, there there's certain people that you you don't want to lose but you'd rather lose to them than that guy right now uh that could sound like i'm being manipulative or that this isn't genuine no i really genuinely love people but at the same time there's also this practical side of it which is I want you to, I want to be the kind of person that people out there who really do have questions, who are atheists that really do, um, really are open to changing their minds. I want to be the kind of person they don't mind giving into. They don't mind uh, listening to and don't mind changing their mind and telling you that. But not, but if you, but if you're frankly a jerk, then people are not necessarily going to, going to be open to that. And so that's what I try to do because it's genuine and because it's just the best way to go about this. And I think that Pendulette's that way too, so I, I like that about him. But let's, let's continue listening to what he has to say. Show uh, a great deal of gratitude to the religious people in the U.S. for being more tolerant of atheists. So they do dare to, dare to come out. But uh, that's, a, that's a good thing to say. He says we ought to appreciate that the religious people are more tolerant of atheists. Not all of them, obviously, and the same goes the other way. But thanks. I'm watching now a lot of my friends struggle with how to get that community in their life. And every community in this country, whether it's the uh, FOMOs, you know, the former Mormons in uh, Salt Lake City, they, they call themselves FOMOs, or whether it's the, um, the uh, uh, community thinkers in uh, the, the, the churches that don't have God that are in, uh, that are in Vegas, 
or the, you know, the DC chapters that are doing this stuff. I, I hear about all of them. They try to get together and do music and do that kind of stuff. We're gonna find what that is. You know, maybe that already is a rock concert or something. I don't know what it is. Or maybe this is, you know, uh, EDM music, you know, or EDM. Maybe it is that, and I just, I'm just not hip to it. But I, things are happening in that. But also personally, we have to be very careful that we throw out talking to God, we don't throw out self-reflection. And I also don't think, and I think there's some religious atheists who would disagree with me on this strongly, but I think it's okay to talk to an imaginary power if you're sure that power is imaginary. Uh, there's, this, there's this nutty thing. It's like a Zen cone to me. Uh, placebos work even when we know they're placebos. That's one hand clapping. That's harder than one hand clapping. Placebos work even when you know they're placebos. To do my weight loss, one of the things I did with Ray Cronice, Cray Ray, was to uh, put myself in a cult. I used a lot of the techniques of a cult in order to get my weight off. I pretended that Cray Ray had answers to all my questions. Any question I asked, Cray Ray would answer. Now we knew in advance he was gonna be making up stuff, but I needed that. I needed someone to give me the answers. He also cut me off from my friends by saying, don't talk about your diet to them, ever, until you lost your weight, don't ever talk about it. First rule of Cray Ray, don't talk about Cray Ray. Do this on your own. We knew we were doing that kind of stuff. We knew we were cheating. Uh, and it worked. It worked. You know, you can pretend. I think sports people do this all the time. They pretend that winning a game is a, is a, is a, is a life and death situation. They know it's not, but they believe it when they're, when they're playing whatever games they play. Why I use the sports analogy when I don't know the rules to one single sport is beyond me. Bad rhetoric. As something that I have in common with Penn. That's why I did it. Um, but I also think there's a lot from prayer in just self-reflection. You, you sit with yourself. I like to do it right before I go to sleep. Laying in bed, going over. How could today have been better? How can tomorrow be better? How can I make my own life, my family's life, and the world just a little better? And I'm not talking about working hard and busting your You don't have to be a hero. <laughs> Just that much better. Could I have been more polite to my barista? <laughs> Those are the kind of things I ask myself at the end of the day. I think that uh, we're going to find in 20 years that we have pulled, just sucked out of religion all the good, the community, the self-reflection, the compassion, the love, and thrown away the bad. Okay, so uh, in a minute we'll go to Jacqueline Glenn, but I, I, I want to say a couple of things about this. So, you, you, it, I have a video that was just recently released on um, uh, libertarian freedom. I think it's called something like uh, uh, "These Atheists Want What Taught in School," and it's about determinism. And uh, it's got uh, Alex O'Connor, cosmic skeptic, who we saw a moment ago, and rationality rules, Stephen Woodford. And you know, in that video, what we what we found was okay. If we take atheism, uh, the, the belief that there is no God, um, which I get it, you, you want to say that's not a worldview, but we have a video on that too. That there's a lot of things that happen to your worldview if uh, if you stop believing in God. Um, and then we take Christianity over here. So you got atheism and Christianity. Um, one of those does not account for your intense sense that you have 
libertarian freedom. It does not account for this intense sense that, that morality is a real thing. Um, and, and there's a lot of things that just go out the window. It does not account for our intense sense that we can make rash, make rational affirmations and real knowledge claims. You'll have to go back and watch that video to get that. I'll link it in the description. But all of these things become illusions that we just have to live with. And admittedly so with at least two of those three, uh, with, with Christ, with, uh, atheists. Okay. Come over here to Christianity. It makes sense of your libertarian freedom, because guess what? You've got libertarian freedom. Make sense of morality, because guess what? There's an ontological grounding for objective moral values and duties. Make sense of rational affirmation and knowledge claims, because your reasoning process isn't determined. You're free to think things through. You really do have that freedom. So all of these things, they're not illusions. They're real. Why are they real? You knew they were real. Deep down under the hood, you knew they were real. This worldview accounts for it. The worldviews that are impacted by atheism do not account for it if they're consistent. Um, and here we find another one. What is it? Prayer seems to work. That's what uh, Penn is saying, right? I mean, at least he's saying, he says, take out the God, take out the supernatural stuff. Still, there is something, in, at least he's saying there's something incredibly valuable in prayer, that it changes him. It allowed for him to uh, get through this weight loss endeavor that, as we can see, worked for him. For those of you who don't know, he used to be a really big guy. And because prayer, he even calls it prayer, what he does at night before he goes to bed, this atheist prays, he even calls it prayer. But he wants to be careful. It's without the God, without the supernatural stuff. And then what did he have to do? Create a false God that he knew was false to trick himself into believing that there was some higher power that was allowing for him or helping him in this process. Because, hey, even if you know it's a placebo, the placebo still works. Okay, fine. Granted. But here's the thing. You realize again that that really sounds like that you see the great efficacy and value in believing in this higher power and believing that it is helping you to affect change in your life and believing that confessing your, shall I say, sins, whether you believe sin is a real concept or not, the things that are wrong, you have this guilt and you have to run through that and, and rethink your day and, and all that. All of that is accounted for on Christianity. You are having to create a counterfeit to it that is vacuous in order to get the results you want in your life, right? Um, so while I realize that the atheist would want to say, yeah, but look, it works without the God and without the, all these other things. Not the point. The point is there is an illusion. You, you have to just say all of that is an illusion that I've just made up. But hey, you know what? It, it works. So in a pragmatic sense, let's pretend there's a God. Let's pretend that I'm sort of repenting of my sins. I don't think he'd use that terminology. But let's pretend all of those things because it actually really does seem to have some sort of an impact. Now, I realize that the criticism is, yeah, but he's an atheist and he's not really talking to God. And so uh, d isn't it the case that he's not really interacting with something that is real, that's allowing for these things to take place in his life. There's a lot of ways we could go with that. We could talk about there is really a placebo effect, so that much is true. But what I want to get at is there's something in Penn that, that, that in order to get to the place he needs to get to, there is a draw toward believing uh, and, and trying to trick himself into believing that there is a God and that there, is all, there are all of these things so that 
he can get the results that he wants. And this brings us to the second comment I want to make about this. He says he wants to get to the place, and he believes we will get to the place where we can suck all of the good things, the community, the, the dedication, I'm not sure of all the things that he mentioned, but the prayer, the, the all these kind of things that religion has to offer, that let's say Christianity has to offer, and we can suck it out of that, or really suck the God out of that and give it to us in a secular sense, and it will it will be all the good things, but without the bad. The hate, yeah, I, I get it. If you find hate, you should ditch the hate. But the God, why, why are you sucking the God out of this? Wouldn't it make more sense to say, it looks like there's really something real about all this stuff. It seems, seems like there's, and there's something inside of me that kind of needs it to be true to get through life. Why suck the God out of it? Because I submit to you that when you suck the God out of it, when you suck the supernatural out of it, what you have done is you have stripped away all the meaning from it. And when you strip away all the meaning from it, um, it's never going to have the efficacy, the potency that it could have had if it weren't just a counterfeit, but if it were the real deal, as Christians have always taught that it has. And only time will tell with that, but I think that we see those sorts of things even now. Um, uh, if you go listen to something like the debate between Matt Dillahunty and um, Michael Jones of Inspiring Philosophy, you'll 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 get some some hint at that. But but I just I just think it's really interesting that here again we have something that you just have to say nope that's all an illusion that I can manifest for myself and the illusion does work. But realize with over the past couple of videos we've seen that free will is an illusion, morality is an illusion, whether they're willing to admit it, rationality and knowledge claims are an illusion. Um, Prayer, even though it seems to have some good effect, is an illusion. Uh, the church community and all the good things that we always knew it had to offer, that's an, it's an illusion that you have to have God for that. We can replicate that. All these things that we kind of know are real deep down in our soul. Oh, it's just an illusion. Ah, it's just, it's not. We just have to live like it's an illusion. Where you've got that on atheism, but on Christianity, nope. It seems that way because it's that way. It just fits. But uh, I wanted to play that because I think that's really interesting. Now, let's let's take a look at Jacqueline Glenn here because, believe it or not, I agree with her on a couple of things. And this is an argument that I find myself in all of the time with people whenever they say, you should respect my beliefs. My response to this is almost always, no, I shouldn't. I should respect you as a person, but that doesn't mean that I necessarily have to respect your beliefs. If I sit here and say that I believe in pray to and worship, a flying, invisible, pink unicorn. And don't ask me how I would know it's pink because it's invisible. You know, just don't question it. Just, you gotta have faith. Flying, pink unicorn. If I said that I believed in it, does that mean that you have to respect that belief? Maybe you... No, I 100% agree with her. And Richard Dawkins has made a similar point that I completely agree with. That just, just because you have a belief, there's not something like... Um, intrinsically good about beliefs. I mean, if you have a belief that is dangerous or just false or that you don't have any good reason to hold, then then yeah, I don't have to respect your beliefs. I, I agree with her uh, that we should respect persons. I don't, again, with the morality thing, I don't think she has any kind of real ontological grounding or foundation for thinking that we should respect other persons, but um, pragmatically perhaps. But, um, but I agree with her nonetheless that yes, we should respect other persons. Uh, but uh, your beliefs, no, you don't have to believe. Now, here's the problem with it. She's, whether she spells it out or not, I suspect, and if I'm wrong, forgive me, Jacqueline Glenn, but I suspect she is, 
drawing a parallel between the flying pink unicorn that how do I know it's pink? I just take it on faith and all that. Um, don't ask me how I know. Drawing a comparison between that and God. And that's just silly. We have great arguments that have stood the test of time. It never fails that in these YouTube videos, someone will say, yeah, but where's your evidence, theist? Where's your evidence? You don't have any evidence. You just take it all on faith. Interestingly, I'm assuming those people are people that are new to my channel. Um, but if you've been at this channel for very long, there are plenty of videos where I go through the evidence, uh, why I believe what I believe. And you can go search those out because there's lots of great evidence. Frankly, there is such good evidence that God exists that it really does boggle my mind that there are people that don't believe. I'm, seriously, I, I don't mean for that to be offensive or condescending, but I'm just, I'm sorry. Uh, given the Kalam cosmological argument, people roll their eyes at that argument because they've heard it so many times and they've heard a lot of atheists say things about it, but that argument has not been debunked. That argument is still powerful. And I'm going to say what very few Christians will say. You know, Christians always want to, Christian apologists, uh, careful ones, always want to make sure we say we don't want to overstate our case and say we have proof when what we really want to say is we have really good reason, reasonable faith, really good reason to believe, strong evidence. I think that the Kalam cosmological argument is about as close to proof as one can get. And if you have a problem with my saying that, the Apostle Paul uses the word proof in Acts 17 when he's talking about the resurrection. So I don't think there's anything intrinsically wrong with me saying it. The Kalam is... I think as close to a slam dunk as we're ever going to get. And I, there, are other, there are other really great arguments out there. But if you hear that argument and understand it and you still don't believe, I think there was a disconnect somewhere. Sorry. And the resurrection, it's a really strong case. Uh, I, I think there are people who legitimately can't bring themselves to get there uh, for whatever reason, evidentially, but, I'm, but, there's, but there's no good response it's just an incredibly powerful case for the resurrection. So, but, but just with God in general, if you don't believe in God, if, if you don't think there's good evidence to believe in God, my conclusion is that you've built an epistemic framework that disallows for the sort of evidence that we have. Um, that or you, you just get to a point where it seems like the conclusion is God and you just stick in the, I don't know, when I don't think you should. But that's not to be personally condescending. That's that's to get you to do what I think Pendulet would have you to do, which is some self-reflection to think about this. And if that sounds condescending, I'm sorry. I try not to sound in any way condescending, but I still have people say, and no matter how hard you try, you can get upset some people. Uh, but uh, all right, so uh, there's no connection between the flying pink unicorn that don't ask me why I believe in it. It's just all in faith and the belief in God. However, I do agree with her that we don't have to just respect people's beliefs just because they're their beliefs. You'll respect me as a person. You might think that my beliefs are a little wacky, but you'll respect me as a person. But you don't have to respect the fact that I think that there is a flying, invisible pink unicorn. Because it's Granted. It's a stupid belief, right? Yes. Along with leprechauns and fairies and hobgoblins and whatever else you can come up with, any supernatural scenario. But to be- Ah, any supernatural scenario, she kind of slipped it in there. But hey, whatever clear and i have to put this disclaimer in all my videos i don't think people who believe in religious things are stupid i myself believed in religion for the majority of my life I that's really helpful um and i don't think a lot of atheists would say that religious people are stupid maybe youtube commenters but like i think that most sensible people uh wouldn't say because they know it's just a fact there are many religious people with ridiculously high iqs um, now, here is the, here is the thing that I, that I think uh, will come up, which is, uh, are they mentally 
disturbed? Do they have a delusion? Are they mentally ill in some way? Believe it or not, people do say that. In fact, there was recently a Twitter conversation uh, where actually an atheist, I think I could say an atheist friend of mine, was taking up for me with another atheist who's going to just love it that I'm talking about this. Um, Because this particular atheist was arguing that I was mentally ill or lean mentally ill um, because I believe in prayer, this particular subject. I should have gotten and screen grabbed and put it up here. But uh, this other atheist was saying, no, he's not mentally disturbed or anything. Uh, I I think she was at least, I, I don't, she would probably say, there might be a couple of things that fall into some categories, but come on, he's not mentally disturbed. I really appreciate that. And I made a Twitter post about it and said, look, here are the people that I've heard say that uh, atheists say that, um, that, the, that, that religious people are not necessarily mentally ill just because they are religious. And um, uh, there was a few, there was two or three that, and I actually had one or two jump on and say, yeah, me too. I don't think you guys are crazy either. Well, good, because that tells me the atheist I should take seriously and the ones that I shouldn't spend time dealing with because the, the level of vitriol is so deep, uh, apparently, that, um, that there's not much I can say. I can, just, I can just pray for them, right? I'll just pray for them. But that brings us to what she's going to say next that I really do want you to hear. I believed in God for the majority of my life. And there are a lot of people that I still look up to and respect that are incredibly intelligent that are religious. But when it comes to prayer, this is something I want to comment on specifically. Whenever it comes to prayer, you kind of have to put it in context because I was recently in a video with my dad where he mentioned somewhere in there that, you know, he was praying for me. And a lot of people took to the comments and said, oh my gosh, you know, I can't believe your dad said he was praying for you. And I either got what a comments or what an idiot comments in reference to that. And I don't really like either one of those things. Because in the context of how he was saying it, he was basically saying, you're in my thoughts, you're on my mind, I'm wishing you well, you're in my prayers. I don't think that that is idiotic of him, and I don't think that it's ill-intentioned. I don't think he's saying it. Although it is possible for people to say these types of things in a way that is condescending, however that was not the case. But imagine saying like, I'm praying for you. She's in my prayers. Oh honey, I'm praying for you. I've gotten all of those. Those are condescending I don't need your prayers. Just kidding, I need your prayers. Please pray for me. No, it doesn't do anything, but neither does saying, hey, you know, you're on my mind, or hey, I'm thinking about you, or hey, I wish you well. Like, none of those things actually physically accomplish anything. It's just letting the other person know that you care for them. You care for their general well-being. So whenever my dad said, I'm praying for her, I'm praying for you. That's basically what he was trying to say, that he wishes me well, I'm on his mind, he loves me, etc. Then there's a... Okay, so uh, that's all we're really... I don't want to leave. That's... I shouldn't... Third aspect to the... There we go. Um, But but here's the thing. I love this. Again, I agree with you, Jacqueline Glenn. Thank you for saying this. When some... There are two ways. I've seen Christians say this to people online and in person that... Well, I'm just going to pray for you then. And they, they kind of mean it in a slightly condescending way toward the person. I don't think there are necessarily good intentions behind it. When they're saying it to an atheist, sometimes they're saying it to be condescending or whatever. Uh, and for that reason, yeah, I'm going to tick some people off here too. When I'm having a discussion with an atheist um, in YouTube comments or on Twitter or in person, I make a point, and I'm not. I may have failed accidentally somewhere, so it's not like you you might be able to find somewhere where I've done this, but uh, you'll certainly be able to find plenty of places where I don't. I, I don't say, uh, 
I, I don't. My typical sign off is blessings, blessings, Braxton Hunter. So I might have accidentally said that a few times. I think I did just here recently. But I usually try to say something like, have a nice day or um, thanks for the conversation or uh, something like that. Because even though I will be praying for them, <laughs> I realize how that sounds. And I don't want to sound that way. I know that that could sound like um, something. So I don't. Uh, it's not that I don't. Be- of course, I believe in prayer, but I don't want to unnecessarily tick somebody off. Uh, so I've witnessed to them. I've tried to defend Christianity and proclaim Christianity, but there's no sense in doing something that's unnecessarily going to tick them off. Maybe I'm wrong to do it the way I do. But if someone does say for you, to you, I'm going to be praying for you, and they don't have those ill intentions, don't jump all over them about that. They're, that's their worldview. You want people to appreciate your worldview, right? Well, let them have their worldview too. That's part of this whole tolerance game that we're talking about, right? Let the, if they say to you, I'm going to be praying for you, just understand, like Jacqueline Glenn says, that what they mean is, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about you or I care about you. They're trying to convey to you that they care about you and they're going to do what they can. For them, that's prayer, okay? You don't think it does anything? Fine. But that's what they're trying to convey. And I just thought that was in, important to include here. Also, another thing I want to include here is, notice she's talking about her dad. She's taking up for her dad here. Good for you. People should take up for their dads, right? Uh, if Unless their dad's doing something horrible to them, right, or somebody else. But in general, people should take up for people they love and care about. There are, here's the way I try to make my YouTube videos. I try to make these videos such that if my brother or close friend um, made a YouTube video out there and was saying certain things against Christianity or against theism, I, I, I try to make the video such that if I was making it to someone I really am close with, would I feel comfortable with them watching it? In most cases, if not every case, yeah, I would. Because that's because I want to present that. Because guess what? That is someone's friend. That is someone's mom or dad. There are skeptics out there who I've I've seen, and they're probably Christian counterparts here, who will really go after someone else and really attack someone else who's a Christian or who's an atheist, perhaps. When uh, in the case of atheists, they're, they'll mention that uh, they're that they have a family member who doesn't believe, who has said things to them, but they don't give that person's name and they don't go after them. You could say, well, that's just because they don't have a platform. No, it's because it's their family member and they know that person is a real person. They've had real meaningful conversations with them and events with them. Well, guess what? Every single person you interact with online is someone like that. They're a real person. And like Jacqueline Glenn says, they deserve your respect. They deserve to be talked to the way that Penn Jillette tries to talk to people and the way I'm trying to talk to them. And yes, this very thing I'm saying right now where I'm showing a bit of passion, I would do that same thing with a close friend or family member who was, I think, going after people and treating them inhumanly, inhumanely. Yeah. So uh, let's remember that, that she's talking about her dad. Everyone is someone's family member. Everyone is someone's friend. So let's talk about the issues Let's not assume the worst motives and let's practice the principle of charity where we assume that the person means well and deal with their arguments. All right, we're going to move on from Jacqueline Glenn now and we're going to take a look at, um, uh, okay, this video by uh, Matt Dillahunty, I'm going to go into deeper response with um, uh, with my uh, co-host, 
uh, Jonathan Pritchett, but I want to play something uh, in this video uh, just from this at the beginning here. All of these things that have demonstrated no actual efficacy, no, no determination that they could actually produce results or have ever actually produced results, all of those things fail exactly like prayer. Now this is one of kind of glib saying that atheists will toss out to mock you know, the very notion of prayer uh, because constantly we're hearing from people Hey, prayer works, prayer works, prayer works. Okay, demonstrate it. I mean, we've done prayer studies. There were studies that seemed to show some correlation between prayer and results from those prayers. Notice that he just said there are some studies that seem to show some correlation, right? But we're not going to dwell on those. We're going to move on to the one or two that I think he mentions quite often um, on prayer. And when I debated Matt, I, I had a whole page on those prayer studies that did seem to show a correlation and a whole deal, but he didn't go that way. So we didn't have to, we didn't have to talk about that. But um, again, Matt, I really like Matt. Uh, Matt uh, with Matt, uh, some Christians really think it's surprising that I that I say that I like Matt Dillahunty uh, because they think, well, if you've seen him on the atheist experience, he's very rough and vitriolic and all those kind of things. Yeah, but I liked Christopher Hitchens. I, I, I like Matt. And uh, I don't know him. I don't think I can say I know him that well, but I met him and I talked to him for a few minutes before and after our debate. And I talked to him during our debate. I like the guy. I think that when he's in front of a Christian audience, he tries to present himself in a respectful way. He was respectful to me. And I think he does try to take a look at the evidence. Um, and so I appreciate that. However, we did just hear him say that there did seem to be some studies that seem to show a positive correlation. But moving on from that prayer, I don't know how you draw a causal chain between the two, though, without dipping into the post, post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy of after this, therefore, because of it. Hey, I prayed and my headache went away. How do you know that your prayer had anything to do with your headache going away? But we hear about this all the time, and then the Templeton Foundation did a study of yeah. intercessory prayer. Essentially, you're praying to intercede on someone else's behalf. Uh, I think they used uh, patients recovering from heart attacks or, or some surgery, medical condition. And what they found is that the prayer works at the rate of chance, that essentially it's the equivalent of doing nothing. You could uh, say a good prayer or a bad prayer, and it doesn't even seem to have any effect on the outcome. Uh, the one notable exception was in the case where the individuals who were being prayed for knew they were being prayed for. Uh, there was a slightly stronger effect. Unfortunately, they did worse. Uh, the supposition is that because there was pressure on them to do well, because they knew they were being prayed for, uh, oh my gosh, you, you, there's people praying for me. If I don't get better, people will think prayer doesn't work. And this stress and anxiety uh, ultimately resulted in them not improving at the same rate, and in some cases getting worse. Uh, so it seems kind of funny that the very stressor that may have led to, the, to them not recovering as well, uh, this fear of, not, uh, of being the sort of result that would show prayer doesn't work, uh, made them exactly the sort of result that show that prayer doesn't work. And I'm usually very cautious in talking about things. We talked before about uh, my position is not there is no God, or it's certainly not one of absolute certainty there. It's I have no good reason to believe that there's a God. And so when it comes to something prayer, the temptation would be to say, I have no good reason to believe that prayer works. And that's true. Um, but I actually, I think we have good reason to believe that prayer doesn't work. 
Okay, so um, we're going to go through the rest of this video in uh, another video, perhaps this week with uh, Jonathan Pritch, as I said. But I do want to say a couple of things here. First of all, uh, I've dealt with this criticism in other videos. I'll try to find one of those and post it in the links. But um, I, I do want to say about this that those kinds of prayer studies, I think, are all wrong uh, for two reasons. One, and he's going to talk a little bit about this in this video, um, but when you're doing a prayer study, there are certain parameters that the Bible lays out for how Christian prayer should work if it's going to be effective. And um, the, with, in Christianity, we say you compare Scripture with Scripture. Um, sometimes one passage doesn't give you the whole story, so you, um, you, you, you take a look at the various passages. Uh, now, uh, if, if a skeptic wanted to say, well, that's not really fair because that assumes that the Bible is this, you know, uh, has this unity of biblical inspiration and uh, Holy Spirit inspiration and stuff. Um, but here's the thing. What Matt is doing here is an internal critique. He's saying, all right, if, if we assumed that Christianity, like we got inside of Christianity and said, given what Christianity or perhaps any other particular religion says, um, does it seem to work? Well, if you're going to do that, then you do assume for the sake of argument that the biblical data, all of the biblical data on prayer is effective. And in fact, he's going to do that through the rest of this video. He's going to take various scriptures and compare them and all that sort of thing. So uh, if, you, if you do that, then you see that it's not just one or two or three statements about prayer. If you take all of what Scripture says about prayer in the New Testament, what you find is there are these, uh, there's almost a list that emerges of what needs to be the case for your prayers to be effective. And um, uh, we're going to go through those in the next video. Uh, we've done them before. But any good researcher knows, I mean, this is research that's being carried out where we're going to uh, try to see if prayer, intercessory prayer works. Um, when you're a good researcher will take into account all the variables that are supposed to be true if the hypothesis is true. So if this research was done properly, it would have taken into account all of the biblical data, made sure that all of that was accounted for, and then see if it works. And I think, as we'll see in that later video, that if you take all the biblical data into account, this sort of an enterprise that the Templeton Foundation was engaging in um, we shouldn't expect that it would work, okay? And so I actually do agree that it, someone might have performance anxiety and get worse as a result of knowing that someone was praying for them. That's perfectly consistent with the worldview that I have, and I think uh, the biblical data on this. A second reason is there is at least one thing that there's when Jesus actually sits his disciples down and explains to them how to pray, there is one aspect of this that I don't see how it could have been present in an organized, sober-minded clinical study that would need to be there for something like this perhaps to work. And so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to go to, uh, and don't leave because of this because I'm going to come back and this won't be very long, but I'm, I'm going to go to uh, my, uh, well, first of all, actually, uh, yeah, actually, first what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you a video that he wants very specific stuff that's not post hoc ergo propter hoc. That's not after the fact, therefore because of the fact or whatever. Um, we're going to look at we're going to look at a very specific video. This comes from uh, Michael Icona, one of the top three scholars in the world on the resurrection, and he shared this in a presentation. I really want you to get this because it could not be more specific, and I want you to hear this. Now, I'm not just talking about the kind of prayers, Lord. I'm traveling from San Jose, driving up to. Sacramento for this afternoon's event. Please get me safe. And I get here safe. Oh, God answered my prayer. Well, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Who knows? I'm talking about radically answered prayer. I've been a Christian for 45 years. I can say there's probably, I could count them on a single hand, radically answered prayer that I've experienced. Um, 
And, um, but I'm, I'm going to give you just one, and it doesn't come from me, it comes from an atheist who was, used to be a Christian. And years ago, we, I think it was 2008 or 2009, we were involved in an internet, or not an internet, an email exchange, and we talked about the evidence for the resurrection, and then I brought up miracles, and he said, yeah, I've been there, done that. You know, when I was uh, much younger, I went to church with my dad, and my dad was a deacon or something like that. We had a small church, and he wrote the following. One time my church desperately needed $7,641 in order to keep going. After an all-night prayer meeting, my dad went to pick up the mail, and in it was a check for exactly $7,641 from someone who didn't even know the church needed the money, but had heard one of the pastors speak a few years ago. My dad contacted the giver, and she said that after she'd heard the pastor speak, she felt God wanted her to put some cash in an annuity and give it to our church. The process took several years, and just days before, she decided to close the account and send the accrued money to the church. And it happened to be the exact amount that was needing, needed right after an all-night prayer meeting. He'd go on just a few lines later and say, So I looked as hard as I could, but finally I realized I had no good reasons to think God existed. So we've got some radically answered prayer. Yeah, so this is what I want you to see here. I mean, some people, the bar of skepticism is so high that they can have something like that very, very specific. And oh, I don't really have any evidence. And this is going to bring us back to uh, something in just a moment. But, but I want you to see here, Matt Dillahunty wants something that seems highly evidential or something like that. I, I think this counts. I mean, how do you get more specific than a number like that? Uh, could it happen by coincidence? Yeah, sure it can. But there are a lot of stories like this. And so, uh, you know, be skeptical if you want to. But if you are a person who's open to examining the data, uh, this idea that, well, prayer just doesn't work and there's a knockdown drag out argument against it and blah, blah, blah. Um, no, I'm sorry. There's lots of really good stuff here. Uh, what I want to do now, though, is to go back to Matt, this Templeton Foundation study and others like it. And this one thing that I think Jesus tells us when he's explaining how to pray and uh, uh, and how I, I don't think this is there in a lot of these sorts of things. And here's I'm going to let my pastor now don't go away. Don't don't go anywhere. This is just this past as of this recording. This is just this past week's uh, message. Uh, from my pastor, and I want you to hear what he has to say here. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. Now, there's a lot of reasons why it's a shorter version than the one you've heard that I can't explain right now, but that's okay. But basically what he does, he's, he, first of all, he gives the what to pray. He gives the content. And this is not something you necessarily recite, and there's lots of reasons to believe that. It's not something necessarily you recite, but it's given. It's capturing subject matter. Emphasize the fatherhood of God. Emphasize his holiness. Emphasize his daily participation in your needs. Emphasize forgiveness from him and towards others. That's the subject matter. But then he follows the subject matter this way. Then Jesus said to him, very next verse. But by the way, I think what happens here is a lot of us, uh, Christians and atheists like, when we read through this section, we're like, oh, yeah, 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 I know that whole bit about this prayer. And then we move on, we gloss over it, but there's more content here. And I think a lot of Christians probably miss this. Suppose you have a friend. I always love how he just breaks into stories all the time. He's great that way. 
Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. I have no food to offer him. Now, you need to understand, in those days, that was a big deal. And, and even to this day, in the Middle East, hospitality is this cultural requirement that if someone shows up at your, at, at your door at 3 a.m., you're supposed to welcome them in, sit them down, give them food. I've been in Middle Eastern places like that. They do that kind of thing. It's just a... Yeah, and in fact, um, when I was in Turkey, uh, I, I've been in the Middle East uh, four times in my life, and um, uh, one of those times was in Turkey last year for a whole month. And on uh, when we were leaving the last city, which was just a small, dusty town in southwestern uh, Turkey um, named uh, Alashahir, we, uh, we, we, we woke up to drive to Istanbul which is basically driving clear across the country from south to north. And we were, uh, we, we needed, we had a rental car and there was a flat tire on the rental car. And this was like 4.30 in the morning, five o'clock in the morning. And we went to a local guy who's, I think his house was probably like right above the tire shop. And for some reason in that particular town, like every other store was a tire shop. But we knocked on this door. This guy comes out, plugs our tire for us, you know, fixes everything and did it all and, and charged us like almost nothing. And uh, so that, that's a very real thing, this hospitality issue. It's a normal thing. And they couldn't go down to the Walmart or if you're a Target person, they couldn't go down there in the middle of the night and pick up things. They would literally have daily bread cooked. And so if you ran out, you ran out. And so your only choice was, I've got to feed this person. He showed up. I'm going to borrow it from a neighbor. And suppose the one inside answers him, don't bother me. The door's already locked, and my children and I are already in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. Now, you can sympathize. If you have little kids, when you finally get them down to sleep, you don't want to wake them up, right? I mean, that's a big deal. I don't want you waking up my kids. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of his friendship, yet because of your, and this, this word is used only here in the entire Bible. It's a very unique word, very interesting word, and it's translated here very well, shameless audacity. He will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Shameless this audacity. This is key. This is what I want you to see. So, and then he's applying the story. I say to you, ask and it will be given you, Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers? And finally, he gives this faithful expectation. It's bold persistence with faith-filled expectation. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for a, an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And that was his teaching on prayer. And I think that should just capture our imaginations, our entire Christ-centered lives. We should always just be looking at this. is Jesus' teaching on prayer. What did he emphasize? He gave content, but he spent most of the time on the how, didn't he? And it was bold persistence, bold persistence. I want you to hear someone a lot smarter than me named Leon Morris. He's a PhD out of Cambridge, a uh, New, New Testament expert. His comments on a couple things in this verse. Get I this. Lay the foundation this is great. He says, the man is persistent. He will not go away, nor will he let his friend go back to sleep. And where friendship cannot prevail, his importunity. See, he uses words like that, meaning he's a lot smarter than me. That literally means shamelessness. Wins the day. The lesson is clear. We must not play at prayer. We must show persistence if we do receive the answer immediately. If we do not see, receive the answer immediately, rather. 
It is not that God is unwilling and must be pressed into answering. The whole context makes it clear that he's eager to give. But if we do, if we do not want what we are asking for enough to be persistent, then we do not want it very much. It is such tepid prayer. It is not such tepid prayer that is answered. Now, then he goes on to comment on the ask, seek, knock, because that's how he followed the story. Remember the story, and then he says, so I tell you, ask, seek, knock. He says all three verbs, ask, seek, and knock, are continuous. Jesus is not speaking of single activities, but of those that persist. He is speaking of an attitude similar to that taught by the parable. And that's put together. Okay, you have content, and then you have the story, and then you have the verbs, and you have what, what's Jesus saying? He's saying bold persistence, bold persistence, bold persistence. Now, what does that look like? This is where the door comes in, okay? I think one of the reasons that we, we don't this have more impactful prayer lives. And, and, and by the way, for, for context on this, and I'll link the whole sermon in the, in the description, but uh, this door thing, he did this several years ago. And at one point, he banged his head on the door and says he blacked out for a moment. And it's been a funny thing in our church ever since that uh, this door thing where he really hurt himself. So he makes a comment here about how, how he doesn't want to do that again. Because let this door just represent that story and represent prayer itself. Many of us, our prayer lives are distracted and busy. You know, this is our lives. You know, we're looking at our phones, kind of occasionally looking up or walking around, and prayer life looks like this, kind of. And we walk on. It's almost as if God is like, and no one's there. You know, just go by. Or you ever tried this one? This, this is one of my favorites. I've done this one. Um, some of us approach prayer like, yeah, I really need to pray more in my life. I tell you what, when I'll do it, uh, right before I go to bed, I'll, uh, I'll pray, and I won't kneel by my bed. I'll just kind of lay here and, and talk to God, kind of like this. And Lord, I just pray that. And that's it. That's your prayer life. Man, faith-filled, world-shattering stuff, right? And then some of us get what I would say uh, supposedly theologically proper. That's where you're like, I'm going to knock three times, not two, not four. Two's not enough, four's too many. God must not be willing for my prayers to be answered. Then I write some giant discourse about how God doesn't move in the world anymore, and he he doesn't answer prayer like he did back in the New Testament times, you know? Yeah. (laughs) But what did he say? It's very tempting to headbutt the thing. I'm I'm trying to resist. I, I I don't really know how to do that. What did he say? In the middle of the night. Door opens, right? My kids are in bed. I can't give you any food. Slam the door. What does he do? Man, it was tempting. Okay. How about I go to. Okay. (laughs) What does he do? He stays. He stays in. Now, why is that such a big deal? Is it that God's resisting? No, because the very end thing is you you need to see that God wants you to have these things. But many of us, the problem is we're like three-year-olds walking down the cereal aisle at the grocery store, you know? I want that. No, no, I want that. I want that. Or we're doing a lot of this. Come on, man. I got to move on. Persistence, bold persistence represents something that you have locked into. Always remember, prayer is process. Prayer is process, and it's not a process that trying to get God shaped. It's what God uses to shape you. 
Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, this is so great because this comes, I just recently read this book, um, called why revival tarries by this guy named Leonard Ravenhill. And it's fantastic. Like, even if you don't believe in Christianity, every page is just, uh, scorched earth, awesome bumper sticker type. I mean, just quotable, like you wouldn't believe. And, uh, it's just fantastic. And it's intense. You start reading that book and you're worn out by the time you get through the second chapter because this guy is so intense and it illustrates to you. And one of the things that he says about prayer is that the prayers that, that he gives all these testimonies and the prayers that have brought the big revivals in the history of the world, um, that have changed cultures and changed nations have been the prayers of desperate people. And it goes so right in line with this. Now, if you're conducting a prayer study, which of those examples that he gave, is it going to be more like it's probably going to be more like the very theologically astute person. I'm going to knock three times and not four and not two. And uh, then I'm going to write a discourse on prayer and how it doesn't work today. I mean, that you're describing these kind of studies. And I'm aware that the organization that, that puts some of these on a Christian organization, I get that. But that's very much what it's like. But that's, that's not what God wants. God wants a real relationship. He's an interactive God. And what you're talking about strikes me as a bit like the 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 the, the old thing where the wife says to the husband, you don't ever tell me you love me anymore. And he says, I told you I loved you when we got married. And if anything changes, I'll let you know. I mean, come on, man. Where's the passion? Where's the real relationship here? And this brings us to the last thing I want to say on this video. And it's this. that, And it's, it's a big problem with what Matt Dillahunty said. And I think a lot of people have this confusion. Prayer can sometimes accidentally, I think, be evidential for people. Um, like with Mike Lycona's story uh, about the exact number. I mean, I have examples like that. Um, you know, several years ago, there was, at least for the number of people that saw it happen, there was a very well-known national Christian speaker who spoke at our school. And we've had at least a couple of those, so you're not going to be able to figure out who it was. But they, but, uh, they came to our school to speak at our school and we paid them a certain amount of money and it, it, it was it was a reasonably large amount of money but it was but you know we really wanted them to come be a blessing to our students and so they came sometime later we were experiencing a particularly difficult financial situation this is during I think this was during the recession and we had a, we it was this particular day we needed a certain amount of money to make it, to, to, you know, to, to make it through. And we went to the mail that day and this particular Christian speaker who had no idea we were having this particular financial crisis had sent us a check. He said in response to prayer and a, a, a prompting of the Holy Spirit that he needed to do this. And it was 10 times. He, he paid us back the amount that we paid him to come and then gave us 10 times that amount of money out of his own organization just as a blessing to our school. And it was exactly what we needed to get through the day. Now, that's not evidential for you because I could be making all that up, right? But for the people on our campus who were there, who witnessed it, it was highly evidential. Um, and the, the Lycona story, things like that. So every now and then there is something that's accidentally evidential, but I don't personally think that the point of prayer is as, uh, is, is necessarily to put God to the test, right? 
it can serve as evidence for the individual. It serves as evidence to the believer, as confirmation uh, of what they already believe. It serves as confirmation to them. You say, well, yeah, but that's not what I'm looking for. Okay, maybe you're looking for the other incredible evidence we already have from other spheres that demonstrate the truth of Christian theism. Maybe you need to look there. But it's, I think it's a category error to think that, pray, that looking to answer prayer primarily as an evidential thing, I don't think that's what's going on. It is evidential to the person who's experiencing it. Um, now, I, I have uh, several great stories of that. I've mentioned them before, uh, but it bears repeating here. Um, like Lycona, I could probably count them on one hand, radically answered prayer. But when I was pastoring in McMinnville, Tennessee, there's still someone you could contact and ask him about this named Joe Grissom. And uh, he was our Sunday school director. And I would pray as we were trying to grow this church, I would pray for a specific number of people to show up in Sunday school because I was trying to grow the Sunday school department because that's where people really learn, you know, the Bible and stuff. And so I was praying for specific numbers. And uh, many times I would pray for a specific number and I would go down to Joe and Joe knew I had this practice. And so it had been right so many times that he started writing down the number. And then when I would go and, and, and he'd say, tell me what the number is. And I'd tell, tell him what number I prayed for, 237 or whatever it was. And he'd look on the, on the card and not always, but many, many times, uh, it was exactly the number I prayed for. Now, you can say that's coincidence. That's fine. It's not evidence for you. But for me, the person who experienced it, it was strong evidence because it was repeatable. It happened uh, multiple times, and I genuinely had the right biblical intentions in this prayer relationship. Another personal example that I've often mentioned is when I, oh, I was in Northern Ireland, and I prayed in a back room with the pastors um, that, the, that a girl— um, uh, that someone would come to the question and answer night. It was an apologetics type thing, question and answer night. That some skeptic would come and that it'd be like a light bulb was turned on for that person. That they would have like a gift of faith and that they would be saved and they'd have all their questions answered. Uh, after the service, they told me that someone had been taken by uh, counselors back to a, a back room and wanted to talk to me. So I went back there. There were other people back there, not just this girl, but it was a, a girl in her late 20s. Um, I think her name is Amy, and Amy had, was sitting right where I was praying, right? And she said her own words. It was like as, as the question and answer time went, all her answers, uh, questions were answered. It was like a light bulb was turned on for her. It was like a gift of faith or something. I mean, just exactly what I had prayed. For you? No, because I'm some Christian, right? I'm probably a grifter, right? I could be making it all up. But for those of us uh, for, who experienced it, who were in there before and after. Yeah, it was incredibly. This is the thing. It's a relationship thing. You have a, this prayer relationship with God, and when you've been a Christian for a couple decades, you just start to see these things stack up. And so when you hear some atheists talk about these sorts of things, I don't mean to be condescending or upsetting, but it just is, it's silly to those of us who've experienced it. It's just silly because we have these personal experiences. And for you to, and when you tell us that it's not real, it's like, well, I don't know what to tell you because I know it's real. I know it's real. Um, and if you're out there and uh, you'd say, well, I'm a Christian and I haven't had these radically answered prayers, continue in the Christian faith. Your Christian faith should not be based upon your having these answered prayers. It should be based upon 
uh, you're trusting. That's what faith, pistis in the Bible is. It's trust or loyalty to Jesus on the basis of uh, what he's doing in your life through the convicting power of the Holy Spirit and through the good evidence that we have that what we're talking about is true. Good reasons to believe in God, good reason to believe uh, in the resurrection. And um, as you've heard me say many times, if God exists and God raised Jesus from the dead, Christianity is true, period. So I'm not saying, I want to make clear, prayer, it, prayer is confirmatory to those who have experienced this radically answered prayer, but it's not disconfirmatory if you haven't experienced it. It's just you haven't experienced it yet. Um, and it's not necessarily evidence for those outside of Christianity. However, there are these moments that, uh, that we find things that, that are. In the end, what I think we see in all of this is we see that the criticisms against prayer are ultimately vacuous or based on misunderstandings like we saw in uh, Alex O'Connor's video. Um, we see that uh, you should have, shouldn't have negative intentions or, or assumptions about people that tell you they're praying for you, even if you're an atheist, like Jacqueline Glenn wanted to point out about her father. We can have reasonable discussions about this, like Penn Jillette wanted to have, but you have to live under the illusion that all of these things that seem so obviously real to you are just illusions uh, rather than reality, when there is a worldview here that makes sense of all those things. And it's not like a puzzle piece where you kind of have to force it in place. It all just slides in nicely and neatly. And so I have great confidence in the power of prayer, great confidence in the truth of Christianity. And I'd be happy for you to contact me at um, braxton at trinityradio.org. And I'd love to talk to you about that. Um, and you can look forward to uh, hearing the next video where we're going to go through the rest of that Matt Dillahunty uh, video and look at the New Testament data and uh, deal with that in our next video with Dr. Pritchett. So uh, thank you for being here and I uh, hope you've enjoyed this. Hope you'll subscribe to the channel. I uh, hope you'll share your favorite video around to other people. And if you'd like to support what we're doing, you can do that at patreon.com slash trinity radio or you can click in the top right hand corner of this screen. And I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.